Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast. Man, I need to do it like a little Ric Flair before. Woo! You know what I mean? Because I am excited, Chris. I'm sharing the stage. I was just saying before we got here that Chris, Kling, and I, I probably have more in common with him than any other guest I've ever had because we are both South Scottsdale guys, man, and raised in South Scottsdale. The other block of Moreland, I was born on Latham. We could have thrown a baseball and hit each other's homes. True story. No, that's super cool. I know I know uh we're a little bit different in age and tab. We we do know some of the same characters and, and people that we grew up with. We we went to the same schools. You ended up going to Coronado, right? Yep. Yep. I jumped ship because my dad was a football coach. So we jumped from Coronado. We were supposed to go. We went to Chaparral. We're firebirds through and through, you know. But I'm really, really excited about getting into it with you about this because I think our lives have crossed paths sometime. I know that uh, I just want to get into it, give you a little history, a little, a little background on Chris. Chris is a Marine. There is no was at any point in time. Chris, when did you enter the services? 84, February of 1984. Got why? out in 90. What was your purpose? Because I know that's a big question. Like, why did you enter the Marine Corps? I was watching a lot of news-based stuff and... We had just bombed Tran, and um, I just had this patriotic surge in me. I was watching all this stuff go on. I was at that battle-ready age. That's part of it. The other part of it is I wasn't going anywhere. And I had a math teacher at Scottsdale Community College call me out on my disruptive behavior in the back of class. And when I came to the front of the class afterwards, she sent everybody home and she looked at me and she's like, why are you wasting your time in here? She's like, you're getting good grades, but you're just disrespectful, disruptive. Why don't you go join the Marine Corps? She just rolled off her tongue just like that. And for some reason, the combination of everything I'd been watching on TV, the fact that I knew she was right, that I really wasn't going anywhere and a little pressure from my father to do something with my life. And boom, I drove from S. Scottsdale Community College down to a recruiter and joined the Marine Corps that day. Yes. Left a month later. Man, who was that teacher? I, I want to give her some props. What was her name? <laughs> I don't even remember. Uh, it's just crazy how people are in our lives for a moment. They give us some, some spark. And I love that, man. I love hearing that, especially in math, because I wasn't in math class. I was avoiding math class. I tell this story often, Chris, like seriously, math was my kryptonite. Honestly, <laughs> I was terrible. I was dyslexic. So I grew up struggling in math and I did everything I possibly could. The reason I became a police officer, which is another another connection with you, your math teacher told you I avoided it. And because I, I wanted to become a cop because I didn't have to go to math. I didn't have to get a degree. That's awesome. And so I'm like, hey, it's easier for me just to go this route. When I was a little kid, I wanted to. But that was honestly one of the biggest reasons because I took math 095 like four times and had to withdraw every time because by the time the first grades were coming out, I was already getting an F. I was trying. I just couldn't do math. Yeah. But I now have my degree. I went back to school, got it, went through math excelled. It's just crazy how our lives, like once you focus on something, you can do it. So you go to the Marine Corps. Give me a little background on your Marine Corps history. How, how, what what did you think of it? How, did you love it? 
What was some of your experiences? You know, it's funny. I, I had always, I, like I said, I wasn't really going anywhere and I was becoming a problem child, you know, stuff going on in my house, wasn't getting off my pops, drinking and, and doing some drugs, not out of hand, but, but a lot for a kid in high school. I got in the Marine Corps and the structure wrapped around me and I got real comfortable in it. I actually excelled as a Marine. I was promoted. I was meritoriously promoted four times in the first two and a half years I was in. So all of a sudden I'm a sergeant. The sergeant in the Marine Corps is um, it's got he comes with an incredible amount of power. Most people wouldn't even understand even more power than the other branches of the service. So here I am at 21. You know, I'm a, a platoon sergeant calling in helicopters in the morning, getting my guys ready. 63 guys snapping too when I when I walk out the door. And uh, it's a powerful experience. And I was good at it. I was very fit. I got pulled for all kinds of accelerated trainings. And, and I love those. And honestly, I'm surprised I didn't stay. Come the end of my tour, you know, they were trying to get me to go to the drill field and even had me go down and hang out with some drill instructors and see if they could get me motivated for it. But um, oddly, I got out and I regret that decision. Yeah, because I know when you got out, that was kind of a demise, right? That's where it kind of spiraled. You went from amazing structure to zero. zero. Yeah. And I went from drinking, you know, drinking hard, but only a, a fraction of the time. Uh, in an infantry unit, we were busy all the time, training all the time. When we weren't, I drank alcoholically, but it was for brief periods of time. I never got in any trouble, had a good career. But boy, when I got out of the core, all that went away. And, and all of a sudden, the drinking was just hit me hard. I started picking up DUIs hand over fist when I got out of the Marine Corps. So, I picked up four. So that's important because what happened is you even had a structure and you were still drinking, but you were able to maintain it. But as yeah. soon as you left, it just exasperated. It just went out of control because now that structure has gone. Now you have all that freedom and boom. And so yeah. how many DUIs? I mean, I've been arrested five times. I've been convicted four. For DUI. Yeah. And that Ooh. doesn't even count one way back in the day before the laws were too strict when some officer tapped on my window at three in the morning, my car window, and I'd been passed out at a literally at a traffic light at Hayden and Indian School for like seven traffic lights. And the guy followed me home way back in the 80s. That would have been number six. Man. So so you're going, you're you're seeing this spiraling out of control. Yeah. And, and this is all happening in our hometown of Scottsdale, Arizona. You went from alcohol and then you started turning to some hard drugs. What happened in your life to where you felt going from a Marine, which is super structured, super mentally tough, Great, greatest. I mean, people may may disagree with this, but probably, probably the greatest armed forces we have. They're just fighters. They have to be yep. mentally tough. And so, where do you think that mind switch happened from going from that from that mentally tough to starting to really lose control with alcohol and drugs? Man, I don't know. That's a really good question. I I can remember being confused by it. Man, when you get a DUI and, and you got to come home and explain that to your parents, that's that's embarrassing, right? Hey, I drank too much. I got pulled over. You get the second one, it's a little harder to explain. By the time you're on your fourth one, the family's just like, what the hell is wrong with you? And and I'm like, I, you know, I don't even know. Like inside, I, I feel like I'm stuck. I don't know what to say. I also remember being confused by the lack of structure. Like I remember getting a job. I worked at Sears and loss prevention. In fact, I worked with two guys. One would later become a Mesa cop and the other one would become one of the uh, assistant chiefs of police in the Scottsdale Police Department. And all three of us worked at Sears arresting shoplifters together. But I remember just being disturbed by 
the lack of structure around work. And I felt lost, man, when I came out of the Corps. And to, to be clear, I did not see combat. There was no war going on when I was in the Marine Corps. But I, I just really felt lost. I, I came back to the world and just didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't feel like employees were good enough. People were good enough. Man, I was lost. And yeah, the drinking just caught fire. All my friends, you know, from high school and grade school were deep in the mix of like cocaine. They were smoking cocaine and some of them were already doing methamphetamine. This is the late eighties, early nineties. And, and I, I remember avoiding that. I was like better than that. Right. I'm a Marine. Like I'm not doing that, but I'm getting just blackout drunk and get DUIs hand over fist <laughs> judging them. You know, I don't know, man. It was, I remember being super confused, feeling ashamed internally, never reaching out for help, never telling anybody what was going on, just sucking it up. So did you, did you not have a sport team? Did you not have a group of brothers that you could rely on at that point? No, I mean, I had friends, but not close like that, you know, and I look back now and I I may have had friends. I just I think I was too ashamed to reach out or tell anybody what was going on. I just kept it hidden, you know, internally. Okay, is that a Marine thing? I don't know. Maybe it's a man thing. Man thing. Like I'm just, I can handle this. Right. I think that's a huge problem, man. I mean, I'm, I got to admit, man, I woke up this morning, super pissed off. There was another officer back East that uh, jumped off a bridge yesterday morning and killed himself. And the crazy part was he was on social media and he was posting it. He was talking about it. He was telling people, man, listen, I'm struggling. And nobody, nobody jumped in. What is going on? Right. And, and you're right. It might be a man thing, but I mean, we, we've got to do better. That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to end my soapbox. It's just so frustrating. We shouldn't have Marines. We shouldn't have vets. We shouldn't have first responders killing themselves, feeling alone. Well, you know, it's funny that I've said this about the core and I, and I can see where it would apply to, uh, you know, to law enforcement too, which is that the Marine Corps is incredibly good at putting together literally some of the world's most feared warriors, but they do nothing. There was no unwinding that, you know, I am bred now at that point, brainwashed to be, to slaughter, to hunt and slaughter human beings. And I come home and I go to work at Sears and I I can't put those two together. You know, I don't know how to make that work. And yeah, it felt lonely. It felt weird. You throw on top of that, you know, some guys go through with combat experience or other traumatic issues. And yeah, you're right, man. I, I felt that way for a long time. We're just, we don't do enough to put these guys back together in a human way, a way that can, you know, and I don't even know what that looks like, to be honest with you, but we just, we kind of lack compassion. We're, we're different. We're changed. You know, yeah, it's frustrating, man. Let's get into it. I'm I'm kind of excited to talk about this. You had a kind of a cool experience with Scottsdale PD, right? You were kind of running, you were running and gunning, doing Mm -hmm. dope, but you had kind of an adverse reaction from one of the officers. I know you were kind of the, the, the central focus of a lot of probably investigations. So, so if you don't mind, man, I would love my guests to be able to hear what you're talking about. What happened? Yeah. So I was, uh, meth was one of my, was my drug of choice. And at the time, you know, this was the nineties, uh, meth was huge Phoenix area and doing damage in all directions. And there was a lot of meth labs in the city and things were bad. I was in the middle of all that, you know, which is odd. I was never raised to be uh, a criminal. My parents were good and all that. I didn't have a rough upbringing or anything like that, but boy, did I get pulled into it. And I, I don't blame the Marine Corps, but the Marine Corps taught me how to be real comfortable with a gun in my hand. And you don't deal with fear the same ways. And the next thing I know, I'm neck deep in a bunch of crime, you know, and it started out simple with, you know, the typical stuff that meth addicts and drug addicts do, which was, you know, fraud, credit card crap, passing bad checks, 
burglaries, stealing stuff out of people's yards, somewhat low level stuff. But I graduated. I started to meet guys that were more and more dangerous doing bigger and bigger things. One of them put a pistol in my hand one night, happened to be a Beretta nine millimeter, which is what I carried in the Marine Corps as a sidearm. I looked at that thing. I was real comfortable with it. And uh, the next thing I know, I'm getting involved in fairly significant crime, you know, burglaries, armed robberies. Now, most of these, I, I never in my life, to my knowledge, I never uh, robbed a normal human being. I was in the business of robbing drug dealers. So, you know, I just ordered up what I want and then go take it. But that's a dangerous way to live. As Man, you that's know, so uh, common. So, common. so Pe- common. People don't understand. You're, you're talking a foreign language here. So, so set that up. What does it look like for if a listener said, wait, 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 what is he doing? Share that. What What are you doing? For as far as making Setups. money goes? Yeah. How are you making money? Okay. So like I was kind of a low level dealer. So I would deal some drugs here and there little in small amounts. Once I found a dealer, I felt comfortable robbing. I hate to say that, but I would set them up. I'd buy from them a few times, get them comfortable with me ordering larger and larger amounts. I was just selling the drugs, no harm there. But, you know, I had a secondary motive. And then one day I would get them to where I could buy, you know, pull a couple of ounces off of them. And uh, when they showed up, I just pulled a pistol and asked them to step out of the car and took everything, the car and everything in it plus their wallet, plus their phone, and drove away. You're uh, doing a reversal on the dealer. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, it's uh, it sends a rip through that world, though. You got to relocate within days. Like, you can't stay in the same area. You know what I mean? And then they're on the hunt for you all over the place. So it was a dangerous game. I did it two or three different times. Uh, I even got involved in a, uh, uh, what do they call that? A home invasion, same way, you know, with a couple of friends, went into uh, a bunch of guys that we knew had dope and stuff in their house. And we went in and duct tied them, duct taped them and, and took their cars and their laptops and dope and left. And, you know, at literally at the end of the day, I'm scratching my head, just almost unbelievable that I can be involved in this kind of stuff. And yet I had to be, you know, there was no other way for me to make money or survive and get what I needed, which was Dope. Now we're we're gonna set it. We're gonna set a caution up there that this is not positive behavior, right? No. And, and the statute of limitations on Chris is now gone, so he, there's no arrest warrant for him. And I got news for you: the people I was robbing wouldn't have called the police anyway. No, they wouldn't, man. That's for <laughs> sure. So you're getting in this lifestyle, man. You're just getting deeper and deeper, right? Yeah. I mean, bigger crimes, bigger crimes, more money, more drugs. And once you get the drugs and money and laptops, you're just you're just trading them out. You're just selling them for more money, more dope. That's how you're staying. And then you go homeless. Well, uh, like I said, Scottsdale PD had associated me with a ring of burglars in that part of town. I wasn't actually a part of the group they were talking about, but I knew that, that group and had had my hands on some of the property. And so Scottsdale PD uh, started to watch me. You know, the I had a car, but it was broken down. So I was mostly on foot. And every time they saw me on the street or every time they saw me anywhere, undercovers would roll up, shake me down, run me for warrants. And all that kind of stuff. And it just got scarier and scarier. I started watching friends of mine and guys that I knew go go down, you know, go to prison for long periods of time. I just kind of pulled back from it, man. I did not want to go to prison. But man, if you don't steal and you don't rob and that's what you do, that's how you kind of sink down to the level of homelessness. Now I can't come up with any money, so I can't get a hotel room or, you know, I can't, if I had dope, I could maybe let somebody would let me stay with them. But all of a sudden that kind of went away from me. And I was just trying to survive at that point, you know, so homelessness, like, 
like hardcore, you know, not staying with friends. I was on the street, lived in and out of the river bottom, lived in and out of parks. Um, every now and then I'd find somebody that would let me live in their like lawnmower shed in their backyard or sleep in their backyard on their lounge chairs or whatever. Again, Marine Corps paid off in the sense that I knew how to live like that. It wasn't as tragic for me as it might be for some. I'd get a quick shower in somebody's hose or go to a, a public pool and pay $2 to take a shower and I just figured it out. Man, I, I know that I have parents that are listening and saying, damn, that is where my kid is right now. This yeah. is what he's doing, man. He's li- he's in and out of homes. He's sleeping on couches. He's couch surf- surfing, you know? And where was the desperation at, man? Where was like the that turning point where you're like, man, this is not who I am. Like I'm a mm-hmm. freaking Marine, man. What was that point for you? Man, it, they would come and go daily. You know, there would be days where I would sit up and just be uh, you'd become really self-aware and say, what am I doing? Like, how did I get here? And I think I was telling you when we met every now and then I would reach out to my brother. The rest of my family had taken my father had already taken an order of protection out because every time I showed up at his house, I stole something or threatened him. And so legally, I wasn't allowed to go near him. And every now and then I would call my brother, who's also a Marine. I'd ask him for, you know, I'd play like I wanted to talk to him like a brother, but really it was the setup. And he knew that I was just hitting him for 20 bucks. And my brother is so funny. He's a great guy. He would just be like, Chris, I'm not giving you any money. I love you. I believe in you. But you're a Marine. Stand up. Just stand up. And he would hang up on me. And and I'd be like, man, you know, I'd be mad. But at the same time, I'm like, he's right. What am I doing? It was really weird, man. It was this is where, you know, I think shame settles in. Now I don't even feel like I'm worthy of the title Marine. You know, I'm feeling like I'm not worthy to be much. Suicidal ideation came in on me hard. I, I, I've i always said since then that I feel like I might have been one of the most suicidal human beings you've ever met that actually never killed themselves. But I had written letters, sat in hotel rooms with a pistol in my mouth, then on the bed, in my mouth, on the bed. I just couldn't get there, man. But boy, did I try. And funny, about three years after I got sober, I, I uh, found this letter a suicide letter that I had written to my father, my brother, and holy cow, man, it really shook me to read it a few years later, but um, just showed me how insanely close I was to pulling the trigger. Yeah. And just how where our minds take us, man, that loneliness, that desperation is real. Oh boy. It's real. And especially, you know, you, I, I felt a tinge of that. Like I felt unworthy to approach my higher power. And and I'm like, man, I'm just, who am I to, to reach up to him? And, and I know there's a, there's a little bit of connection with the same with Marine. Like I, I'm not even worthy to call myself that I, I'm with you, but it's just crazy how that, how that uh, our minds can take us to some man, some deep, dark places. This is where the, my connection to Scottsdale PD came in. You know, the, the, the guy that I told you I had worked with uh, who was now one of the assistant chiefs was watching me and, you know, listening to these uh, undercover units talk about their, you know, their experiences with me. And so he said, so this is a guy you've worked with Sears. It's Sears. So yeah. you guys were, we're working together, resting bad guys that were shoplifting. He yeah. now becomes a police officer. You're a drag of society. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> he reaches out through one of his sergeants. I was sleeping in a, an abandoned car one night bunch of police rolled up, pulled me out of the car, started to search the vehicle. Normal stuff for me. I'm just sitting there. It's like three in the morning and a sergeant pulls up and he gets out and he tells them all to get out of my car and go back to what they were doing. And and I'm like, whoa, what's this about? You know, this is unusual. I'm sitting there with zip ties on and a, on a curb. And once they all get out of my car. And you had dope in the car. 
and I had to open the car. Yeah, you know you did. You know you got off. Yeah, you bet I did. So they cut the zip ties off me. This guy just sits on the hood of his car and starts talking to me. You know, he asked me if I'd eaten. He um, he asked me if I knew knew this guy, the, you know, this officer. And I said, yeah, I know him. And he's like, well, he's been watching you. You know, I know you guys were friends. He cares about you. Um, he just wanted to let you know that if you want some help, we will we will try to get you some help. And and I wasn't I wasn't down for it right then. I was like, no, fine, mind your own business. It's basically the I gave him a lot of attitude, you know. And he wasn't giving it to me back. And I kind of calmed down. And anyway, he just talked to me like a human being. You went fast through this, but this is pretty deep, man. You have a lot of undercovers, and I know what that's like, man. When you show up, dude, you're on you're on it. You're at a twenty five, right? <laughs> You, you're so your level is so up there, right? They're they're ba- banging you up. They're they're asking you a thousand questions. Where's the dope, right? <laughs> you, you're pissed off. You're giving them an attitude. You were probably hadn't slept for days. Mm-hmm. You probably just used. Um, you're angry. You don't want to be harassed. And then you have a sergeant come up to you and kick everybody out, and and he relaxes enough to sit on the hood of his car to chat with you. Yeah. Man, what was that like? Uh, confusing at first, you know, confusing, and I put me on guard. It didn't make me relax. It made me got gunned up. Like, what's going on right now that he's setting me up? You know, I don't trust this guy. And then he does the weirdest thing ever. He, he makes a call on the radio. This little pickup truck, a Scottsdale PD pickup truck shows up. They hand him a clipboard. He signs something and they give him two $20 bills. He turns around and hands me the 40 bucks. And he said, listen, I hope you do something healthy with this. Get a meal. Maybe get a room, get a shower. He's like, um, but again, I just want you to know that if you decide you want some help, there's help available. I took that $40 and I was like, okay, you know, I'm you using. Much. Yeah. I walked 25 minutes later. I had dope. Thank you to the Scottsdale PD. They bought me some dope that day, but I'll tell you what, whatever he did worked because whenever he unzipped that cop suit and just stepped out of it and became a man, it messed with me because it made me start thinking if he's not who he pretends to be, then maybe I'm not who I think I am. And it just messed my head for days. I walked around thinking about that. Really touching to me at later, you know, that once he let me go and gave me the money, I realized there was no secondary motive. He genuinely was trying to help me. And I just could not believe that. And I had not had anyone, anyone, including family, try to help me in a long time, you know? So it was, it came out of the blue and I, I, that wasn't the only event. There was a couple of other events that led up to it, but it was only a couple of weeks after this event that I ended up getting sober. Chris, I could see, I could just hear your brain going a million miles. They're like, what are they doing to me? You're in this eternal battle, man. They're giving you an opportunity. To, here's special. Ball. I've never given a bad guy. I'm doing that. My, the air quotes, 40 bucks. Cause I know he's going down. That might be the last 40 bucks that kills him. He may go shoot yeah. up with and die. That dude, somebody loved you. Somebody was taking care of you and, yeah. and watching. But the funny part is, is the way you express it, man. Like it was messing with your brain. Yeah. Right. Big time. And Big then you, time. So you're telling me after this moment, two weeks later, you're sober on the path. So I think I had had a couple of other events. I had somebody that was a user like me, uh, a girl that I knew pull me aside and just out of the blue, she's like, you don't belong in this world, man. Like, why are you here? You don't belong in this world. And um, I was really broken down. I had, like I said, at this point, I was so suicidal. I was contemplating diving in front of cars or, you know, I, I knew I couldn't get a gun and kill myself. Because every time I got a gun, I was like, oh, wow, I can pawn that. I'd get rid of it. And I was like, dang it, I can't even kill myself right. And so the. Were, were you taking riskier, riskier steps, uh, like you caution out the way? Because as a Marine, 
it's very, very situational awareness, right? Yeah. You're, you're planned out. But as you are feeling suicidal, you still have this experience. You can know you can go get a door kick. You know you can go make money anytime. Were you, yeah. were you doing riskier and riskier behaviors? Sort of. I mean, uh, no, not sort of. Yes. In particular, I tied myself to a couple of very dangerous individuals that are now in prison for a long time. You know, these were the ones that were kind of going around robbing. They were dope families, but they were families, you know, and, and smashed doors in. And I was even getting into it with friends of mine, you know, fighting with friends of mine. But yeah, I was suicidal. So I wanted to die. I didn't really care how. And it had become pretty clear to me that I wasn't going to be able to do it. So maybe someone else would. A cop? Sure. No problem. Drug addict? Absolutely. I was okay with all that. So yeah, you just, there's nothing seems risky at that point. You just don't yeah. care. So talk to me about your road to sobriety, brother. One day I'd had enough. I literally stood up. I was in the river bottom, just laying on a greasy sheet of cardboard hating myself. And I stood up and I was like, I can't do this another day. And so I had been, you know, I'd been to every halfway house in town. I, unfortunately, I owed them all money because my MO was to show up and stay a week and eat all their food and then dust them and walk out. And, uh, but there was one house over in a raunchy part of Phoenix, 16th street in Virginia, back behind the, uh, the children's hospital were on every corner. You could buy black, clear, white, anything you wanted. But there was tucked back in there, this crappy little halfway house. There's 22 guys living in one four-bedroom house, five of them in the in the garage. And I, I knew they'd let me back in. And I walked back there and, and walked in the door. They were said the same thing they always say, man. You're going to have to get a sponsor. You're going to have to go to meetings. You're going to have to do this. You're going to have to do that. And I, you know, I knew the game. I was like, okay, 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 I'll do that. I had no intention of getting sober that day. I really didn't. But in the coming 24, maybe 36 hours, that conversation with that cop came back into my head. That conversation with that drug addict girl came back into my head. And, uh, and then I bumped into a guy. The last time I was in that sober living house, it had been like eight or 10 months before, there was this older guy living there. Um, who had seen me then, you know, and he started laughing at me when I came in. He's like, wow, you look like shit. Like, do you have anything? Because I didn't even have a backpack at that point. I didn't have a razor or a toothbrush. I didn't have nothing, just shiny pants that were all greasy. And and uh, he's laughing at me. And I'm like, hey, old man, like, I'll kill you. Stop making fun, you know, watch your mouth. And he just kept laughing. He thought it was funny. And the next morning I bumped into another buddy of mine from the street and he looked good. He looked sounding good. And he was I was like, what are you doing, man? And he's like, I'm, I'm doing AA. And I was like, say anything but that. Please don't say recovery. He's like, no, that's what I'm doing, man. And, and he's like, you should try it. And I was, he was like, have you ever really tried recovery? And I didn't even have to think about it. I was like, no, I've never really tried it. And that's after a lot of DUIs where you're forced to meetings. And you know what I mean? I had exposure to recovery. I just yeah. didn't fight. And he's like, well, you probably ought to try it again, man, because you look like shit. I was like, well, what are you doing? Who's your sponsor? Maybe I'll, I'll get your sponsor. And he goes, I don't think you want to do that. And I was like, why not? And he goes, because it's that old man that's sitting in the kitchen giving you shit. That's all karma, brother. <laughs> yeah. Love it. So I was like, damn it. But I went over there and knocked on that that old man's door. And uh, I was like, I need help. And he's, he was changed. It went from a laugh to a straight face. He's like, wow. He goes, I didn't expect you to say that. He goes, you must really need help if you're knocking on my door. And I'm like, you know, my buddy says you're a good sponsor. And so that was it. And I went to work uh, for the first time ever. I did what was asked of me. You know, he put simple things in front of me. Read this chapter. Write these thoughts down. Meet with me tonight. Go to these meetings. And it was simple and it was structured and structure I connected to. 
And I just started doing it, you know, without a whole lot of thought. And I think in the past, whenever I had done all this, I had all kinds of thought, you know, I'm analyzing it, breaking it down. I have this incredible attorney in my head that collects evidence to prove that I'm in the wrong place with the wrong people doing the wrong things. Only it turns out I'm always in the right place when I have those thoughts. You know, it's just... uh to be honest with you, I had been to treatment in, in a few years before that. My, my parents had intervened on me. My, my father and my brother did. And, and I went to treatment and I just walked out and relapsed. So, and I certainly didn't know what it like looked like to be sober. So I was kind of scared of it. You know, I remember that sponsor asked me, he goes, are you afraid this will work? Are you afraid it won't work? And I was like, I think I'm afraid it's going to work. And I didn't know how to live like that. You know, I had this idea that I had to drink to be normal. And if I couldn't drink, then I wouldn't be normal. Man, here comes all the confusion again, right? I go from this crazy lifestyle to now I'm supposed to try to be honest and forthright and a man of my word and, and all these things. And it's quite the learning curve, to be honest with you. And see, people don't understand that that learning curve, that relearning curve. Relearning. Yeah. It's rough. Two weeks ago, we're kicking in people's doors, stealing their dope, putting guns in their face. And, right. and now I got to be rigorously honest with honest. everybody and start making amends. Yeah. Come on. And if I lie, I got to catch my, and I catch myself. I got to go right back and tell people I lied. I had to do that a lot in the beginning. You know, I lied about everything. I don't even know why I lied. I would just, if you asked me, you know, if I was male, I would say, no, I'm female. Just because I didn't want, for some reason, I didn't want to give you the right answer, no matter what it was. Man, is that not the craziest that you're not the first guy I've heard say that? It's like, we lied just to lie. Then you walk away and we're like, what was that about? Like, you have this fight in your head. Like, am I really this bad off? Yeah, what is wrong with me? My God. <laughs> and like I said, going all the all the way back to my you know childhood, I just wasn't raised like that. Like, I wasn't raised like that. I came from a good family. I was taught to be honest. I was taught to be kind, all those things. I had good parents. So how do I get so far away from that? And now how do I get back from that? It's like, it's a lot. It's a lot. So how long did it take you? When, some, from that moment, have you been sober? I have. Yeah, that was April 22nd of 2006. What's today? April something. On the 22nd of this month, I'll be 15 years sober. Congratulations, brother. Now, what I want to know is I know the ending of the story, but my listeners want to hear this. So I'm going to I'm going to preface it like this. How did you make amends with Scottsdale PD? Well, first of all, I'm still making amends with Scottsdale PD. According to my sponsor, that will never come to an end for me. I'll be continuing that in general to uh, law enforcement worldwide. I, I owe an amends. But I had uh, when I got sober. And I was probably six or 10 months sober. I went to face a warrant I had in Scottsdale for uh, domestic violence. I had threatened my father. They had uh, assigned me to go to a, a year's group of years of classes for substance abuse and a year of classes for anger management. And every time they'd set that up, I'd say, oh, yeah, I'll go. And then I'd duck out. And so the warrant had been set for this like four or five times. And I finally showed up. I'm in these classes. So I'm about 10, 11 months sober. And I'm sitting at a bus stop just coming home from these classes. And they drive by me and see me. And I see them. And uh, I was sitting there at the bus stop with this lady who had her kids. And I was like, hey, I thought it was you. I'd grab your kids. And she's like, why is that? I'm like, because police are going to show up here right quick. And they're going to come out quick. And she's like, what? And I said, just just grab your kids. And she did. And whoo, there come the police. Like three, four cars pulled right up on me, jump out. They run me for warrants. And then they find out that I'm, I fixed my warrants. I'm sober in a halfway house and I'm going to these classes and they were just stupefied. They were like, no, they're like, you sound good. They're like, I, we can't believe it. And so not much happened that day, except they took me home. They put me in a car and took me to where I said I lived and they wanted to see that. And then my buddy, the, the assistant chief of P, 
police reached out within a couple of days and uh, just called the facility. And I get on the phone and it's police. All my uh, drug addict friends are in there. They're like, police are on the phone for you. I'm like, oh, great. And it was these guys. And they were just like, man, we heard you're doing well, that you're okay. And, and so they, they stayed with me. You know, this guy came and took me to lunch a few times. And over the next few years, they just stayed close. But then when I was about four years sober and I was working in the industry now and I'm helping a lot of people and they had gotten close to that. They asked me to come and speak to this big meeting that Scottsdale PD has every year, just all upper echelon. I think it's chief assistant chiefs, captains, but it seemed like a lot of cops that day, 50 or 60 cops. And, and they asked me to come in and do a pitch to all of them. We never get a, a good ending, you know, a happy ending like the fire department does. And, and, nobody thought you were going to be alive, my friend. We thought you were going to be in prison or buried. So I go and do this pitch to the police. And and there was four cops there that day that had arrested me in a raid. And during the raid, I spit on everybody and tried to them. Let me tell you, don't do that. Police are a lot better at that than you are. I took a wicked beating that day, but I deserved it. That had arrested me. There were some of the undercovers that I knew. I got to make amends to them. and and uh, But the true amends came because as they saw me progress into the recovery field, they started to reach out to me with their own people. You know, there was cops who's had a son that was struggling. There was police that were struggling themselves. And I got to get involved in cases and help find paths for them or just talk to them. And even one night I remember the PD reached out to me, Scottsdale and said, Hey, we, we got a call last night on a guy who's a gambler and we know that you're more drugs. Um, but he was very suicidal. He lost all of his money. And then his father gave him the money to pay his pay out his mortgage. And he gambled all that away. He was suicidal last night. And so we, we didn't charge him with anything, but he needs help. Can you help? Well, I was at the time taking meetings into the jails with a bunch of guys that are from Gamblers Anonymous. So I was able to help. I pulled them over. And so I just got to start getting involved with all these things that, that kind of helped the police. And man, what a blessing, you know, to be able to go back in there and offer some sort of uh, direction and help. Today, of course, I get to work with first responders all the time and, and have loved to do that, you know? Yeah. Chris, man, what a freaking story, bro. What What a cool <laughs> vibe. You have, I know today you're working as an interventionist, you're working yep. with the company that you're running. Um, you're, you're, so you went from a Marine to an alcoholic, to a drug addict, to a home invasioner, committing crimes, stealing dope, really? to fighting with the police, hating who you were, wanting to become, wanting to die. This guy that is sitting here today with a voice that wants to of hope, a voice of hope, a voice of reason, of, of, of wanting to help men and women just get sober, man. Yeah. Somewhere along the path, I fell deeply in love with human beings. And I can tell you that prior to this, I was not deeply in love with human beings. I was deeply in love with Chris, although it didn't look like it. The harder I loved myself, the more damage I did. So I wasn't very good at loving myself, I guess, but I just didn't really like people. I was always kind of a, even my own family would tell you that as a kid, I was a prick. I was a funny guy, but I was funny at your expense. Kind of a bully, even though I wasn't a real big kid. And so somewhere along the line, I just have I started to fall in love with human beings. Oddly, the human beings I was falling in love with were bad human beings, very sick, very torn up human beings. But I just felt compassion for them and I connected to them. And I really now, as I started to get training in this industry, I felt like I could in fact help them. And slowly but surely, that's exactly what's happened. You know, some people that were in that industry were witness to me working with some clients and they were just like, dude, this is your calling. And some really cool people got around me and pushed me to to do this intervention work and then trained me. You know, I did a year internship and, and, uh, 
uh, but I worked at Community Bridges for years. You know, I cut my teeth right there at, at, in Community Bridges and and worked in a couple of different treatment centers and some detoxes and just learned, man, worked with great doctors and therapists and, and learned and learned and learned and read, you know, a, an avid reader now of all sorts of recovery-based and spiritual-based books and talk about a different life. Talk about a different life. I'm proud of you, man. I'm proud of you. So if a family's looking to, to get, I know, I know you just, this is what you do. But I appreciate your story. Appreciate you being a neighbor of mine, being able to have like stories, man, and share this strength and hope with anybody. But if they want to get a hold of you, how do they? How do they talk to you, Chris? The website where my that my bio is listed on is just called Love in Action, and the the website is loveinactionus.com, US as in United States. So loveinactionus.com, or they can call me directly. My cell phone six zero two four six five. 2766. And all of my contact info is listed on the website anyway, including my email address. Um, but yeah, if you got somebody out there sick, struggling um, with not only with substance abuse, but mental health issues, reach out. And uh, if I can't help you directly, I promise you I'll find the people that can. Yeah, we could we could do that. Hey, this is this is exactly why I called my my business Chase the Vase. You know, chasing the vase, we all have a different vase that we're chasing. Chris, yours was sobriety. Now it's helping people. For me, it was sobriety, having a good marriage, having beautiful kids. I mean, these are we're just chasing something, man. And I appreciate you coming on. I, I love your story. Uh, I just invite you to, if you if you have any questions for Chris, feel free to call him. You have a cell phone. If you want to keep chasing the vase, www.chasethevasechallenge.com. Reach out to us. Let us know how we can help you. Thank you for your sobriety. Till next time, we'll see you. Thank you, Chris. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcast to get new, fresh, weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.